Well, we're up to Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, continuing our study with the Beatitudes as we continue throughout Matthew chapter 5 on this July the 8th. And we're moving right along. This is lesson number 31. I think we'll begin covering some ground a little quicker, as I said, when we get through the Beatitudes, because even today we're forced to consider... uh, the verse 9 here of chapter 5 dealing with peacemakers in light of uh, some verses that even follow later in chapter 5 that reflect upon uh, preparations that peacemakers have to make and so forth. So what I'm saying is all those scriptures are kind of coming together as we look at chapter nine, uh, verse 9 of chapter 5 when we get to those scriptures starting around verse 21 actually that that come to bear on verse 9 today. We'll, we'll go through those maybe a little faster, having already covered some of that a little bit. And we'll get on through. And I'm anxious to get to the seventh chapter. And we'll see what lies for us there. So, But this morning we're looking uh, at this number seven of, of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And once again... We can't look at this without looking at the fact that these uh, uh, Beatitudes continue in progression. They're built upon each other. So we're still on the top here with peacemaking, looking down at the other Beatitudes that we've already covered. And we see peacemakers as kind of a, of a pinnacle. Now we'll look at persecution a bit uh, next week or the week after persecution of those who follow Christ, but today we're looking at those who make peace. And what a statement. I mean, peace is what we're all after, right? I mean, break it down. Uh, Even unbelievers want peace. They want stability. They want confidence. They want a a steadfastness. They want a a security in their life. And the problem is because they don't have Christ, they just try to get it a whole lot of different ways, right? They want it this way, that way. As the Bible says, a way that seems right to a man, but it ends in death. But we're all after the same thing. That's why we can talk in general about, as we've said before, Rob, the hole in in a person's chest that only Christ can feel, only the truth of God's word can feel and yet it's so elusive but a peacemaker for sure a person who is able to do that has first off found peace within themselves we'll look at that this morning in detail and see what the scriptures have to say about that in particular there is no peace right now in general for two primary reasons and they're very basic The reason that there's not is, number one, because, plainly, of the opposition of Satan himself. He's bound and determined to keep you and me and everybody else away from any level of peace in our life. Because what happens when we experience peace is so many other things get kicked into gear, right? We become rightly motivated. The priorities in our life become even more clear the strength that we need to do the difficult task in life and be a witness for Christ and to literally 
submit every portion of our life to Christ has to do with our peace and the level of peace that we're experiencing. It's all tied up with our confidence and with our commitment to Him. The Bible says that there is a rest provided to the people of God. That rest is provided because we are experiencing the peace of God. We're able to rest with confidence. You can't separate it from our faith. You can't do it. They're all tied together. So that's the first thing, is literally the opposition of Satan. Peter, as you know, reminds us that he roams about, as it says, and he says like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, looking for someone to dominate. That happens, of course, regarding unbelievers. We know that, those that he does possess. But yet for the believer to intervene, to find that crack in the armor, if you will, a place where he can get in and disrupt this level of peace that we experience. How does he do that? By enticing us to sin. And when we sin, sin's always the problem. Oh, is he going to talk about sin again this morning? Well, it's always the issue. (laughs) It's always there. It's what we fight against in our life. Because the second thing is, the second reason that there is no peace is simply because of the disobedience of man. The disobedience of man. You can't go a week, it seems like, without uh, finding a a story either uh, uh, from a notable person, either an athlete or somebody in Hollywood, some celebrity who has it all, it seems, from the world's perspective, and yet they do something crazy. They uh, take their own life, for instance. Who's the latest one? I guess that's Anthony Bardone, is that his name? I was reading an article about him uh, this week. Uh, And you know how that works. You see that. Because none of these things, none of the things, if you will, of the world ever satisfy. They won't. They simply will not satisfy. They will not provide that level of peace, real peace that we need in our life. So Satan continues his opposition And mankind continues to be disobedient. And that's what we fight against as believers. Someone has said, and I've heard this before in the the law enforcement realm, peace is that glorious moment in history when everyone stops to reload. (laughs) And it's sad that we can't do any better than that because we look back on history And as I studied this, and I won't bore you with all the historical details, but there were really only two periods in history where there was no war. And if you go back and look at one of them, the one that that continued right after the Civil War from like 1865 to up to, I think it was 1898, in order to consider that a time of peace and safety, you would have to just discount what was happening out in the West with the Indian Wars. And isn't it odd that they don't even count that? Well, that was people dying. Okay, that was people being killed and unjustly, I might add. Uh, All those horrible things that happened, you have to discount that to consider that a time of peace. And I don't think we we can do that. We can do that. Another uh, number said that from, uh, I think it was like 
from 36 years before the birth of Christ, there have been over 14,500 documented historical fact wars. That's the nature of our society. And of course, it continues, <coughs> it continues today. You would be surprised at the things that our country is involved in here and there uh, that you probably don't hear about a lot in other places that involves death and killing and military action and so forth. That's our life. That's the way the world is. And we're called to be peacemakers. That starts within ourselves. And in order to be a peacemaker, you can stop right now and look back, as I said, at these other areas, these beatitudes that we've looked at and say, well, these must first be a reality in my life. Start with the meekness in the morning and work yourself up if you want to be a peacemaker because certain things will have to transpire in our life. We will have to be changed if we're going to experience peace within ourselves. <coughs> Excuse me. If we're going to be able to be a peacemaker in the lives of other people. That's what we're called to be. So again, forensically, we look at this word peacemaker. Aaronopolis is the word, and it means just that, to be peaceable or to be a peacemaker. This is the result, if you will, of following and maturing, growing in our sanctification, if you will, under Christ. This is the result, because this is what we share. And quite frankly, when we share Christ with someone else, when we introduce Christ into a situation, when we approach a difficulty, you know, trying to work, uh, uh, work the Word of God into someone else's life, that's the work that we're doing. We're doing the work of a peacemaker, bringing peace to a situation. The sense of the word is really rare, it says, in the Old Testament. When we consider peacemaking as we know it. But in the New Testament and in certain rabbinic literature, we find it fairly prevalent. And it always deals with the absence of strife. But that's only part of the pie, right? It's not just being away from something or not having something. It's just like sin. It's not just turning from sin, but it's what are you turning to. So there's two aspects of that. And we find that fleshed out when we study the New Testament and we study peacemaking and all that the Bible has to say about it. It is the working of reconciling two alienated parties, if you will, of taking two enemies, this is the picture, taking two enemies and bringing them together in a relationship. Bringing them together to a point of unity or harmony. This is the work that we do as peacemakers. There are really only two New Testament texts that refer specifically to peacemaking apart from this. You find one in Colossians one twenty. Uh, you got Jesus' speaking of the fullness of Christ and the Godhead, all fullness being found in Him. And And it continues in verse 20, and it says, And through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace, 
the act of peacemaking through the blood of His cross. Paul continues, it says, Through Him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And it just takes a moment to point to the foundation of our peace. And that is quite simply what Christ has done. But the language there is specific. It talks about the act of making peace, being a peacemaker. And as believers, this is where we start. And again, I say, and it will emerge throughout our study this morning, you can't be a peacemaker if you don't already have that peace. Now you can do something. You can do something that kind of looks like that. You might be able to pour water on a fire for a while, but it'll blaze back up. It'll blaze back up. And there's a different name for that. We'll call it in just a moment. The second verse is James chapter 3, verse 18. It reads, And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Again, talking about actual peacemakers. And here the word means peace-loving or peace-prompting. And someone who is active in bringing about peace. You might say that the Colossians verse talks about the peace of Christ. And then in James here, in James 3.18, it talks about the peace that we're able to bring to people because we are in Christ. This is what our life is about. <coughs> Wouldn't you want to be known as a peacemaker? I guarantee you your phone would be lighting up all the time and your driveway would be full of cars and there would be people wanting to talk and speak with you and get you to, to help them and to provide your insight to them because people want peace in their life. That's what they want. Let me read from James the first uh, portions of that verse because listen to this because James takes it very practically and breaks it down in James chapter 3. We looked at verse 18, but look at beginning with verse 13, what he has to say to us. And we can see how peace is eroded and actually what our battle is against as we seek peace. He says in verse 13, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from heaven, but is earthly, natural. And what else? Demonic. Wow. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And then the verse that we read, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Once again, you have to be a possessor of peace yourself in order to be an agent of peace in the lives of other people. But James tells us here, and, and tells us specifically, he, he identifies some things that work against our peace. He speaks of bitter jealousy. He speaks of selfish ambition. He speaks of arrogance. 
And he says if we do this, we, we lie against the truth. In other words, another way of saying it, there is no, there is no peace found any other way. If we attempt to do it by our own, you know, our own workings, our own manipulations, if you will, we're lying against the truth. We know what is required. I dare say that deep down, people who are outside of Christ, uh, they're trying and working, as I said, manipulating circumstances in their life to bring about a level of peace in their life. And yet, they know that it's iffy. They know that it's not, you know, the great potential that it's not going to work out. They know that's true. They have that witness within themselves, but they continue to try to do things literally their own way and to manufacture their own level of peace. When all the time there's that voice inside that says, this this is not going to work. It's not going to work. But they think that's the best that they can do perhaps. He says this wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but it's earthly, it's natural, it's part of our natural state, it flows out of the natural man. And he says quite frankly, and this is a heavy statement, that it's demonic. That the devil uses that and is the instigator of that. If nothing else in the life of an unbeliever to get them on the wrong path, pursuing a path that will produce nothing in the end. There's not going to be any peace at the end. We encourage people to come to Christ in confession, in submission, giving over to Him, trusting Him in every area of their life. This is quite a difference, isn't it? Quite a difference from what the world's way is. Jealousy and selfish ambition He mentions a second time. I wonder why the Holy Spirit had him do that. Jealousy and selfish ambition. Not wanting the best for others. Being more focused upon the things for yourself. That brings strife. Selfish ambition. Wanting to uplift self. So antithetical to what the Bible, to what the Scripture teaches in so many other places. It results in disorder. Can you imagine what it does to the church? If there's disorder in the church, and we know that Christ is not the author of confusion, as it says when it talks about modes of worship and methods of worship. So does it stand to reason that where there's disorder, that there's sin in the camp somewhere? If there's disorder in the family unit, there's sin in the camp somewhere. We can trace it back and literally find the area, if you will, specifically where peace began to erode. We can find that if we we go about it as the Word of God tells us to do here. He says it's a root, if you will, of every evil thing. Every evil thing. Well, thank God that He has overcome that for us, that He has provided the way. We can listen to His Word and we can trust Him and follow Him and see our way clearly through all of this mess. But we never get there. In fact, we never can take that first step until we isolate what the sin is. We don't like that. We still don't like that. 
Now, I would trust as growing, maturing believers that we would like that. That we would just admit that, yeah, you know, there's still areas in my life where sin could creep in. I want to I find that. And I want to extinguish that. I want to identify that. I want to confess that because it will erode my life. It will, it will literally lead to all types of disorder in my life. I want to stop that. I want to call it what it is in submission to the Word of God and I want to deal with it. I want to forsake it. and I want to get it out and move on. Now that's the attitude of a growing believer. And that's what we pray for. James is clearly speaking of ending conflict between individuals, but he's talking about between oneself and others and intervening to help others find that area of peace amidst conflict in their lives. That's what we do. We'll never get there unless we're willing to admit the problem is most often not a simple misunderstanding. It is indeed an area of sin. We have to be willing to go there. Remember we shared Paul's wisdom in that regard. because he, as Even as he looked at his life, because of all the accusations that were coming into his life, and he was able to say, I don't know of anything, but as I said last time, he says, I'm not by this acquitted. There's still the possibility. And I've got to be willing to look at that. I've got to make sure there's not been an omission. I've got to make sure that I've not held on to something. And we know that that was a reality in his life because later on with the, the vision and all, he was tempted to be proud in his life. He still had that little crack in his armor, if you will. And the, the problem couldn't be taken away. The messenger of Satan that was there to buffet him was put there to keep him humble. You know, I'd like to be able to avoid that in my life, wouldn't you? I really would. I'd like to say, now look, Lord, I'll just, you point it out, I'll take care of it. And I don't think Paul did any less or would do any less. So if that's a reality, it speaks of the strength of sin that remains in our life through the flesh. That Paul, the Apostle Paul, literally had to have that lest he be exalted above measure, as it says, after all he's been through. You mean you can't get a handle on this, Paul? Everybody's got something, it seems like. The whole point is to erode our peace, to make us less than what we are, to literally take the strength that's in us through faith and confidence in God's Word, and it's just like opening up a spout in the center of our back and it just flowing out. We need all of God. We need all that He has for us. We can keep our eyes on Him and be effective in His work. MacArthur made a statement in his commentary as I was looking at this. He says, when self is first, peace is last. Simple as that. You need a little simple axiom to go by. When self is first, when self is on the throne, peace will begin to erode. In the life of a believer, this simply will not work. We are not just about ourselves in this life. We're bought with a price. Our life is not our own. We need Christ. Our life belongs to Him. We've given Him that life because He's not just our Savior. He is our Lord. 
And when something comes into that to compete with that, then we begin to see the erosion. And the good, the good message is too that the more we yield ourselves to Him, no matter what the difficulty, no matter what the challenge, the more we yield ourselves to Him, the greater level of peace we will experience. That's a wonderful thing. The peace of God, or God's peace, is not like that of the world. It's two different things. God's peace, he says, never evades issues. It knows nothing of peace at any price. And this is the battle that we fight with the world nowadays, right? Peace at any price. You see that theology, if you will, that belief bleeding over into every area of man's endeavor, particularly politics. It knows nothing of peace at any price. It does not gloss or hide, rationalize or excuse. It doesn't do any of that. It confronts problems and seeks to solve them. And after the problems are solved, it builds a bridge between those who were, separ- who were separated by those problems And even in the midst of that, and this often discourages us, he says it often brings its own struggle, it brings its own pain, its own hardship and anguish, because such are often the price of healing. It's a difficult process sometimes, this this pursuit of peace, because people are reluctant to let go of what they think brings them stability, brings them confidence, brings them security to help them see that you've got your, if you pardon the expression, your, your, your wagon hitched to the wrong star here, okay? The, the road you're pursuing is going nowhere. It involves submission. It involves trust, a yielding to the truth of God's Word. Getting people to see that, that is the battle. Would you agree? That is the process where we're talking about coming to Christ initially or where we're talking about surrendering, identifying and surrendering every portion of our life to Christ. We're afraid to do that for those reasons. Well, what about the meaning of peace? What serves to define peace? And you'll always find two things present. It's going to, it's going to deal with our personal righteousness And it's going to always be based upon the truth. And of course, that's from God's Word. Because peace is more than the absence of conflict and strife. It is the presence of righteousness. And we're talking about the presence of Christ within us. We know we have nothing. We know, and talked about it last week, uh, an imputed righteousness which we have. God has given that to us. That's what equips us. That's what cleanses and changes us into a vessel fit, as it says, for the Master's use. And the result for us is peace. Regardless of what's going on outside, we're confident. We rest in the peace of God, regardless of the task that's before us. Righteousness is what produces the relationship that brings two people together. How's that so? How does that work? Can anybody explain that to me this morning? I'm going to take a break here for just a minute. How does that work? Is that a true statement? Righteousness is what produces the relationship that brings two people together. You can answer that in two ways, right? 
Well, we know that it's the righteousness of Christ, first off, that empowers us, His presence within us. And then as we work and speak and live out and, if you will, invest our lives in the lives of others for the purpose of bringing peace into that life, to eliminating disorder, to eliminating wrong thinking, of identifying areas of sin and seeing those things eradicated out of a person's life. We only do that through that same power, the power of Christ. He's reconciled us to Him and now... And we'll see again in a moment through Scripture, we are agents of reconciliation in the lives of other people. Now that's literally, that's what our life's about as believers. Our endeavors should be to involve ourselves, to submit ourselves to this kind of work, if you will, in the lives of other people. That's what we're to do. In Jesus' day and still in Jewish society, when someone says shalom, what do they mean? What does that word mean? Peace. We used to go to New Salem Baptist Church. That Salem is from the word shalom. New Peace Baptist Church. What they were saying then and what that meant, they were saying God's highest good to you. I want the best for you. I'm interested in you. I'm interested in what your needs are right now. If we're to be an agent of peace, if we're to be one who can be used in this process of reconciliation, because this is God's way. He still uses preachers. He still uses the witness of the church. He still uses and always will use the example of the church to manifest Christ, does He not? The peace of man, if you will, if it doesn't involve this, is nothing more, as He says, it's nothing more than a truce. You don't really have peace because there's nothing long-lasting. There's no root to it. The, the, the root problem has not been addressed. You just have a truce. You just have a cessation of hostilities. That's all you have. And people go their separate ways, but there's been no peace. There's been no identification of the sin problem. There's been no true repentance, if you will. You only have a truce. That's why it's so sad even in Christian circles, when two people can't come together on the truth. How is that possible given the workings of the Holy Spirit within a person? How is that possible? Why can't it happen? And we know it happens, right? We know it happens. We know it in the Bible that it happens. We know that Paul and Barnabas couldn't get together, right? They just couldn't. One saw it one way, one saw it the other. One didn't question the other's commitment or belief. It doesn't appear. We don't have a whole lot of information. But it seemed the best that they could do there was to go this way. And I think it would be reading too much in it to say that they didn't have peace because we know that there was healing followed after that. Certainly as regarding John Mark, we know the story and what, what happened there. Nobody was written off, if you will. And we saw how the Holy Spirit as a whole used both those works, used both those, uh, you know, the fact that they diverged there was still used. God used that. It usually comes down to a person seeking their own way. Seeking their own way. And always, you know, not not being willing to say, you know, I may be wrong. (laughs) I could be wrong. 
holy smoke, I am wrong. <laughs> no. We had to be willing to go there. And praise God when He opens our eyes. Two people cannot be at peace until they recognize and resolve the wrong attitudes and actions that cause the conflict between them and then bring themselves to God for cleansing. That's what believers do. That's what our motivation is. Hebrews 12.14 encourages us, (coughs) Pursue peace with all men. Pursue it. Track it down. And the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Well, this is pretty important, isn't it then? And we see here in this verse particularly that peace and purity go together. Peace and purity go together. Where there is an impurity, peace will begin to erode. (coughs) In Psalm 85.10 It literally speaks, I won't go there and read it, but it says that righteousness and peace have kissed each other. There it brings them together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Psalm 85.10 It's a sweet thing when they come together. And they must if we're to experience peace. And then you have, we have to consider... Let's bounce on up to Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, where Christ again speaks about peace. And you might think, well, there goes the, there goes the peace initiative. Because listen to this. Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And here Christ reminds us that we're not to have peace at any price. That opposition will most often and will precede any level of harmony in our life. Why? Because this battle continues to rage. Truth and righteousness are the terms upon which peace is made. The gospel itself will bring bad feelings, right? Before it brings good feelings. What must be dealt with first when we consider literally the giving of the simple gospel in an evangelical setting? What must happen first? Sin must be identified. Sin must be confessed. Mourning is what we've already talked about with one of our Beatitudes. And then turning, that meekness if you recall, turning to God. It always involves this process. But the human heart wants to skip over that, right? It wants to just jump on over to the love and the acceptance of Christ in any situation. That's why he uses this term, peace at any price. We don't go there. We miss the mark. We bypass true peace when we do that if we're not willing to be changed. If we can't make that confession, we won't have peace. Now that remains in the life of the believer. That process remains. We're constantly bringing ourselves before Him. We're constantly examining ourselves, as Paul said. And we don't have to do that in fear. We can do that in love. We can do that by saying, God, as Paul said, I don't know of anything right now, but because my whole life is given to You, Lord, and I want to be used to the maximum capability, then look, shine that light on me. You know, the the metaphor was holding up a, a jar, a piece of pottery, if you will, into the light to reveal the cracks. Okay? Shine that light on me, the light of your word. 
And when there's a crack, and it might be, listen, it might be in my thought life, the things that I allow myself to dwell upon, it might be manifested in some lustful thought or some fearful thought, (coughs) some unbelief that remains in our life. What about that guy who came to Christ and said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's a guy who did a little bit of self-examination. The good news is that God answers that prayer. That prayer does not go unanswered. And I'd say to you this morning, that's what He wants. He wants that. He wants that type of submission from us. Give it all. Give it all to Him. We have to be careful because that easy believism is still out there, is it not? I often quote Charles Swindoll. I've quoted him many times in here. I'll never forget this one quote, and it's fitting that I throw it at you again this morning when he says there is a new gospel out there that it is totally without offense and it is totally without effect. The gospel must do its work in our heart of conviction, of revealing. That's such a big deal with us. Last week, as we do every month, we observe the Lord's Supper, right? Communion. And I'm so thankful that it's always a part of our observation to examine our heart. And now we're just submitting ourselves to Scripture. That's what it says to do. How do churches bypass that? How do they do that? And Christ Himself institutes this so that we don't forget, that we remember that if we come to celebrate and to remember His broken body and His shed blood, that which provided for our sanctification, if we don't stop and examine the sin in our life, how can we say that we belong to Him, or in that, in that case, that we want to truly worship Him? We can't do that if we're not willing to say, look through me, look at me, look through me, look within me, and clean me up before I come. And thank you for paying my sin debt. I don't know if I've shared with you before, but I um, heard John MacArthur say he was off on a trip with his son. And their manner is whenever they can, they'll go to church somewhere, obviously, and you know, on a Sunday if they're out for the weekend. And they went to a church. He didn't say which one. I don't remember what state it was in. But they noticed on the bulletin there that they would observe the Lord's Supper. So they preached the sermon. You know, well, you know they're going to do it at the end instead of the beginning like we do here. But he said when the church was over, I mean, when the service was over, he kept, well, you know, where are the, where are the containers, you know, where are the... And the preacher said, oh, by the way, there's juice and crackers on the way out. Feel free to help yourself. He said they were, they, they were speechless. It was just incredulous. How do, how do you, <laughs> what do you say? <laughs> what do you say? Well, they need to come to church here, don't they? <laughs> that was amazing. Absolutely amazing. Well, Christ says he did not come to bring peace but a sword. He's not saying everything else he said about peace. He is peace. You know, my peace, I'll leave with you. All that's still true. All that's in effect. But it's not not peace at any price. He said, no, 
He says, you know what's going to happen? He said, a, a mother's going to be turned against her daughter. And a son's going to be turned against his father. Because people do not want to hear the truth about their sin. They don't want to hear that. But there's peace at the end. There's genuine peace at the end. <coughs> Isaiah 48.22 says, There is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. There is no peace for them. And there's not. There may be a truce, but there's no peace. In Jeremiah 8, 11 and 12, he says, he speaks of those who were saying, peace, peace, right? They were looking at the situation throughout as Jeremiah and so many others were preaching and saying, no, this is what's going to happen. There's bondage in your future. That's what's awaiting you. There's bondage. But no, there were those who said, eh, I don't believe that. Peace, peace. But there is no peace, he says. And it adds that they certainly were not ashamed and they did not know how to blush. In other words, they, were no long, they, were, they had grown insensitive to the realities of sin. They'd grown insensitive to it. Paul would use the word seared, a seared conscience, if you will. He says in Romans 1, he talks about those who have done that for so long that now they're not even capable. They don't have the mental facility. They don't have the mental capacity. They're not even ashamed. They don't care. They do things openly, he says, and they not only do those things knowing the truth, they get joy in others who do them. In other words, that's who they are. That's their lifestyle. They're given over in what area of sin you want to plug in. That's the sad state. For peace to reign, there has to be a confrontation of sin. And in the life of a believer, that should be a welcomed confrontation. A welcomed reality. And I tell you, when we approach it with that attitude, it's short-lived. We can make short work of it. What am I talking about? Again, identifying it, calling it what it is. Turning from it, turning to Christ. Finding the strength of His Word over any sinful situation that seeks to dominate our life. You do that, you'll experience peace in an ongoing way. Forsake any false notion. We have to be willing to examine what we believe and make sure that we're acting in the truth. I use the word shadow boxing, that we're not shadow boxing. We're not looking at what ifs. We're not, we're not assuming something happened or something was said. We might know the potential for something, but we don't know the facts about it. I've been bitten by this before in my life. If you, you act on something, you think, well, a good sense says this happened, but that didn't happen. That didn't happen. Deal with the truth. Forsake any and all false notions. And then lastly, acknowledge God as the one who is most offended. Not you. Not me. All sin is against God first and foremost. When David cries out in his psalm, against thee and thee only have I sinned. He's not saying he didn't sin against anything else, right? We know that. We know you can sin against your own body. You can certainly sin against other people. He's saying that first and foremost, sin is against God first. And we do well to respond to it in that way. 
if for no other reason it takes our eyes off of ourself, which can be a slippery slope (laughs) if that's all we're focused on. When we're focused upon pleasing God and acting in His way, we're going to get to the truth and we're going to get to that level of peace much, much faster. The person who's not willing... Listen, the person who's not willing to disrupt and disturb, if you will, in God's name cannot be a peacemaker. You can't be afraid you're going to upset somebody by telling them the truth. Now, you can be a part of that problem by not being spiritually prepared. You can be a part of that problem by not focusing upon the will of God, but on yourself, because that's what will be obvious when you talk. You can't hide it. People are perceptive. I tell you, when you start doing things for the sake of Christ, according to His Word, instead of just yourself, things begin to change. To come to terms on anything less than God's truth and righteousness is to settle for a truce. And we've already defined what a truce is. A truce which confirms, it just serves to confirm sinners in their sin and may leave them even further from the kingdom. Those, he says, and I'm quoting from a MacArthur commentary here, those who, turn the page too quick, (laughs) those who in the name of love or kindness or compassion try to witness by appeasement and compromising God's Word will find that their witness leads away from Him, not to Him. Talking about God, of course. God's peacemaker will not let a sleeping dog lie if it is opposed to God's truth. They will not protect the status quo if it is ungodly and unrighteous. They are not willing to make peace at any price. God's peace comes only in God's way. Being a peacemaker is essentially the result of a holy life and the call to others to embrace the gospel of holiness, which only God can provide. That's what He does. The work of peacemaking then on our part requires knowledge. We need to know the Word of God. We, know, we need to know the impact of the Word of God on a particular situation. And quite frankly, practically, we need to be disciplined when we're dealing with someone and we enter into an area that we know we need a little more information on from God's Word. We need to say that. We don't need to just go, go, go in an effort to make like we don't, you know, we still know what we're talking about. We need to say, no, you know, I need to look at that. Let me, let me get back. There's more to that. And say it plainly. I want to see, I want to look more deeply at what God's Word has to say about this. I might know a little something here, a little something there, but I want to know all of God's Word on this particular issue, on this particular topic. It takes knowledge. It takes commitment. You must be committed to the process of peacemaking. We must be committed to the process. We're not going to be discouraged when we're rejected. We're not going to be discouraged when it seems like in spite of everything that we're doing, the situation continues to deteriorate. Why? Because there is a battle. Just can't say it any other way. We should expect that. But we stay committed. We keep our eyes upon Him. The truth of God will prevail. So we enter with knowledge. We enter with commitment. 
And we must be willing to sacrifice. It will cost. It will be costly to us in some way. Not just in our time and our our talents and our resources trying to help someone. But sometimes it it can turn toward us, right? Yeah. Rejection. Ridicule for speaking truth into someone's life. I'd simply say to you, that's okay. That's okay because God's Word will prevail. There's story after story of people who come and they share as a part of their testimony. They give thanks to that person, that individual. Sometimes it's a mother or father. Sometimes it's a coach, it's a teacher, or just a good friend or a co-worker. And they say, that person never, ever gave up on me. They were a constant source. They may not say it this way, but this is the truth of it. They were a constant source of peace in my life. They were showing me the way. They were steadfast, and they never wavered. I don't know how long it takes with some people to see the light, or we know they may not ever see the light, but we know that's what we're supposed to do. That's what we're to do, and that's what we are committed to do. Well, let's see. I got three more pages, so let's stop right there. Lord,